0: Today, my guest is responsible for the nonprofit organization Barefoot College International. She is currently steering the establishment of six training centers throughout Sub Saharan Africa, Latin America, and the Pacific. She is leading a dynamic team of young colleagues throughout the world to develop and employ learning content in education and solar electrification areas. In this episode, we go deep and talk about mindset and how women will change the world. Ladies and gentlemen, my guest, Megan Fallon. Megan, how are you?
1: I'm very well. Good morning. Namaste.
0: Megan, the Barefoot College has done some amazing work in the last few years. But tell us, how did you get involved with the project?
1: Sure. Well... I was working uh, with one of my companies uh, in East Africa, working with women in a community in Zanzibar, and they were making some embroideries for me, and they were unable actually to uh, make enough of the embroideries quickly enough for the job that I was working on. And when I realized that the reason for that was their lack of access to any energy um, and My process of spending time with those women really uh, embedded in me a sort of critical understanding of just how many things in a community were derailed uh, without good infrastructure, both light and water. So I went looking for a way to build those things into the uh, community. My company had always a, a social uh, mission to it to invest in, in women's education and so I uh, I looked at quite a few different programs ended up seeing Barefoot and really instinctively almost immediately resonated with the values and the approach to working with human beings that that Barefoot has really always had from its inception. And so I funded that project and we we worked very hard to implement it. And through the course of that next year, I really became uh, just in awe of what I saw those women become with the access to learning. Um, And the access to mastering technology that was offered to them. And I watched a whole community uh, take back its power in uh, both a a literal and metaphorical way. And it just really resonated with with everything I felt we should be investing in uh, as as the business community. And so I continued to have a dialogue with, with Bunker, Roy, the founder of Barefoot. And um, I agreed to come and do some consulting for them. Barefoot was just at the point where it was starting to scale its model and, and to really look to expand uh, internationally. And I felt there were some things that needed to shift in the organization and develop in order for them to be able to reach their potential. So Bunker and I uh, spoke a lot. I ended up going for six months and that was nine years ago. So <laughs> I think clearly it was where I was meant to go.
0: What are some of the things that you thought they needed to change?
1: Well, I think that, um, you know, so many uh, community-based organizations who are really focused on doing beautiful community work um, organically uh, evolve. And that process of organic evolution means that you can get yourself into some splintered um, programming because you're trying to be responsive to the community. You're really doing it with the best intention. But in the end, um, you splinter your resources and you splinter your focus. And that uh, somehow stops you from really being able to go deeper into impact in, in fewer areas. So I felt Barefoot needed a little bit of an editing process Um, And so that was one thing. I felt that one of the things that the organization was founded on was this beautiful synergy that came from people from the the more formally educated world, in some cases the urban world, coming to work alongside in the utmost respect with non formally educated people and the bringing of those two wisdoms and skill sets together. Uh, and that that had been the magic of Barefoot College when it started in 1972. And somehow that had been lost over the years. Um, And so I wanted to reinvigorate that. I wanted young people back in the organization. I really saw that they had so much to give, so much to offer, and so much to learn from the older staff in Telonia that uh, I wanted to create some mechanisms for that to happen. And then lastly, we really needed to clean up our model of delivery so that we were able to replicate at speed and scale that we were able to communicate to the outside world clearly the many impacts the programs were having and thus be able to develop a strong uh, set of supporters and investors. Uh, and, I, and I mean that not just in a financial set, sense, but um, people who would come to uh, the model, who would be able to teach us, that we'd be able to learn from, and we would be able to leverage to be able to go further and faster with, with what we were doing.
0: So you run programs all over the world, and that's fascinating because it's almost like you're running a business that's scaling, right? You have to worry about staffing, volunteers, operational costs, and et cetera. But I'm interested to hear your opinion about the transformation from a small, localized organization, a community organization, to one that now has an international presence.
1: So I think fundamentally, I don't like that word business because... um, our immediate revert is is to something to do with um, I don't know a more uh, a less personal and a less human uh, activity. I think that professionalism is a is a better word for what um, I like to apply to the not for profit or the hybrid social enterprise world. I think that we have to be um, as professional in our structures and processes as accountable uh, as a as a an organization that's delivering a shareholder return, right? In our case, our shareholders are our beneficiaries. And in order to deliver for them to hear their voice, to respect their needs, we need to operate uh, with accountability, with transparency, and with financial uh, well-being. So that's the sort of framework that I, I hope that we now have at Barefoot and that I think is important for all uh, social innovation organizations to have. I think the days of, of, them, uh, of them sort of working and being charities, this isn't really, um, isn't really what is in the best interest of the beneficiary. Uh, and it's not really what they want. They don't want to hand out. They want to hand up. And they want us to hear what they need and they want us to respond to that and to support the skills and abundance they already have uh, in in resource-stretched communities. So I think that's the mindset and that's important to understand. And then in terms of scale, we work on a partnership model. It's a really strong model for scale because we are forever not going alone. We're going together. And when you go alone, um, you may go, but you don't go very far. When you go together, you go far, you go wide, and you let go of some of the control to, and trust in your partners to be able to take you that, that much further. So our partnership uh, is an interesting one because it starts with the community we first build the partnership with the community. Secondly, we build partnership with a set of ground partners across the world and in India, who now number more than about 138. And those ground partners are all other civil society or community-based organizations or even large NGOs like WWF, um, who's a very strong partner of ours. Uh, And they help us to reach into each of the local contexts where we want to work. And they become our mechanism for sustainability in those uh, communities because they're already working there. They already have a presence and they already have trust. They know the local situation. And so we work with them uh, to leverage their skills and knowledge, uh, their successes and failures, so that we are able to move more effectively uh, in partnership with them. And then lastly, we always bring government along. Whether government is our partner or not in a financial sense, we always are working to have government know what we're doing, to understand what we're doing, to be respected in the process. Because at a certain point when things work, only government can scale those programs even further. And so if they haven't been your partner and haven't learned about the impact, they're not going to be able to to help you when you need. They won't understand what's been done and they won't be able to be a stakeholder. So we do work very respectfully with government. And then I I think we also have to acknowledge that Barefoot has a very strong commitment now to working with private sector um, and understanding how they can play engaged roles even at local level with communities um, and giving them pathways to do that. Because I actually think there are Many, many visionary companies and corporations out there, they have employees who are demanding that they add purpose into what they're doing, that they behave sustainably, that they move in positive ways for communities. And so we try to find ways that, that they can do that and that are positive for them and their their employees to engage with us in.
0: In the last decade, what have been some of the biggest challenges you had to face
1: Oh, that's always mindset. That's always mindset and and vested interests, uh, small and large. Um, You know, we're we're doing something really crazy in a way. We're basically saying there's 40% of the planet's population whose wisdom skills and knowledge have absolutely not been part of the equation of solving problems. And we think that knowledge and wisdom is worth as much or more as what you get out of a formal education system and so i'm talking about things like having rural illiterate semi-literate women sitting at a design process with an mit or stanford graduate um learning about and from each other about how to put technology uh, in place in the developing world that will really Change uh, quality of life for human beings, and and what that needs to look like, and and respecting each other's experiences and and needs, and I think that's really challenges a lot of people, right? Because you're basically saying, you know, actually, there's no expert here. There's just a lot of us that have a lot of knowledge. It's all of similar value, and how are we going to work together to change a system that's not serving everybody?
0: Mm. The idea of mindset, I'm very interested. You have had the opportunity to meet hundreds, if not thousands, of women and seeing that mindset shift. How how do we accomplish that beyond in terms of with our kids? How do we change someone's mindset?
1: You know, people's people's mindset changes when they are able to be an active participant in a process when they feel they're invested and when they they have the opportunity to learn something new um, and and to touch that and feel that. We see that with the women and how learning and engaging with technology, in particular in this case solar home lighting systems, uh, or it might be rainwater harvesting systems, or now we're doing a lot of livelihoods and they're, they're starting to learn things like beekeeping and uh, coffee growing and permaculture. And you know, we're moving into more and more activities that they tell us they want to engage in. And it's really as they master those things that their mindset changes. Because they're often the person in a community who's been written off and most undervalued or underestimated, when their role shifts everybody else around them has a mindset shift automatically, because suddenly the woman you thought wasn't capable of anything but looking after her grandchildren or her children is now on the top of a roof, hooking up a solar home lighting system and bringing the thing to the community that they want most. So she becomes a disruptor, but in a positive sense for everybody in that community. And then, of course, you've got a minister of energy, looking at this woman, never having imagined that they would today be delivering across 96 countries 1.4 gigawatts of clean energy. It's extraordinary, and it's real. It's practical. It's real. It's happening in real time. And so you're forced to shift your mindset because you're seeing, you know, an actual uh, implementation of, of somebody's human potential. Uh, and it's not what you imagine it to be, so you you wake up and you look up and you and you do change the way you think, so it starts with the women
0: <laughs> no listen i'm I'm a father of two little girls, so I'm all about that <laughs> <laughs> you know.
1: never underestimate a woman
0: <laughs> yes, absolutely. I'm one hundred percent behind that as well. What are some other technologies or skills that you think will will be coming up in the next few years that can really improve some of those people's life?
1: So one of the things that we've learned from the women, because our journey at Barefoot is a, a learning, relearning, unlearning in continuum, <laughs> never uh, to reach the end of that road. So we're, we're always learning from the women and learning from the communities, both good and bad things. And one of the things we really understood in the last 10 years was Um, almost all of the women that we work with were doing some other type of livelihood, right? They were raising chickens. They were weaving baskets. They were weaving mats. They were sewing something, embroidery, all these other wonderful things that women do to help make things better for everybody in the house um, and earn a little money. But most of them were saying to us, they didn't really understand why they couldn't have a consistent, a more consistent income. And we realized that there were some things missing in their experiential learning. Um, that actually did come from more formal learning environments things like critical thinking skills how to break down a micro enterprise and understand what resources you needed, what those would cost, how um, to best purchase those, how to bring something to market, how to understand what other people were charging for that same thing. So you didn't find yourself charging less than everybody else in your area. Um, and, and so that um, led to the development of a second curriculum, which is called Enrich. And Enrich has eight pillars of knowledge that we have come to believe very strongly that women need uh, in order to really take up an activity and think clearly, have confidence, have agency in what they're doing, and be able to eventually arrive to a more consistent income earning uh, and joining of a formal economy. So those consist of um, financial literacy and financial inclusion skills. Digital skills, using a 3G mobile phone, uh, using a tablet, even if you're illiterate or semi-literate. Um, a, a knowledge of your basic human rights. What, what's okay and what's not okay within your household and your family, your community, um, what you have a right to. Environmental stewardship. What's the environment you live in? And what are the practices in your communities that are positive for the environment and which ones are not that need to change? And we see women as a tremendous mechanism in rural communities for uh, the SDG, the Sustainable Development Goal agendas, because they're uniquely placed to be teachers once they're enabled with that knowledge. Um, We talk about with the women um, health, menstrual health, reproductive health, nutrition, keeping women healthy. When your family relies on your earning, it's really important that you know how to keep yourself healthy and and how to manage your own body. Tremendous confidence comes from understanding your own body, first and foremost. We talk with the women about microenterprise skills, so exactly what I told you, the the critical thinking skills around microenterprises. And then lastly, we do a lot of work with women on mapping their agency Um, and their aspirations. So being able to vision for themselves uh, into the future where they'd like to go. If we don't know where we'd like to go, it's really hard to get somewhere. And most of the women that we're dealing with have lived in environments where they have been under the shadow of a father, a brother, or a husband uh, in some way, shape, or form. And the voices around them have been telling them what they can't do. And so we try to shift that for women and and give them an opportunity to begin to have their voice again, to say what they want and what they can do. Um, And so that curriculum, that enriched curriculum now runs parallel to the technology. And the combination of the two of those things is, as you can imagine, very, very, very powerful.
0: Do you have a program in place to keep track of development in how they're moving forward? How do you guys engage later on once the the program is complete?
1: Yeah, so we have an ongoing monitoring and evaluation program which consists of of monitoring of the community and the impacts within the community, financial as well as behavioral. We have uh, also a survey program which monitors at six monthly interviews a lot of feedback from the women themselves. We use sensor technology on much of the hardware, so we're getting real-time data on environmental output, energy output, efficacy, and things like that. We track uh, education, most importantly, for children in communities. We track health, and we track uh, economic uh, indicators in terms of uplift on economic indicators. Um, So all of that's going on at, at six monthly interviews, intervals throughout the um, the program up to two years, and then uh, we roll back into a evaluation framework which does an annual uh, check in and evaluation against key performance indicators. So yes, there's there's a lot of things, but here's where we go back to the partnerships again, because in many cases our local partners who are already then working in those communities, and now this adds to their program portfolio with those those communities is also measuring and evaluating the cumulative and layered impact of, okay, what happens to water and sanitation behavior once solar electrification is in place? What might happen in agricultural practices once communities begin to learn to uh, work together on programs financially? And, and do they then start things like seed banks and and other kinds of mechanisms that are catalyzed by the solar electrification program. So our impacts are sometimes direct and they're also indirect and uh, they shift and change over time. I I can share a couple of things. Um, Earnings in communities after electrification uh, at the solar program that we install go up in the neighborhood of 34 to 36 percent in the first year. Uh, So that's a pretty big increase. And education results, attainment and attendance for children in communities that now have clean light, good quality clean light throughout the whole household, not simply a little solar lantern, but proper light in the household, um, goes up to nearly 70% uh, increase over before. Because where there's clean light, children read more, they then attain better, they attend more, and parents become more involved in their learning. Um, so I, I think the, you know there's no question that that access to energy is, is a human right. Actually, nothing can can progress uh, at the rates we'd like it to um, without that. Um, the, the inhalation of black smoke by, women either through cooking but also through burning of kerosene lanterns in the developing world is the number one killer of women uh, and that's unacceptable we have solutions to that and we we need to prioritize those solutions i think
0: has social media been a helpful tool for your organization
1: yeah so i mean social media is is wonderful and um, and i yeah of course i i accept all of the the great and wonderful things that social media can do. Um, I think that we have a challenge because uh, social media is great, but that's a passive activity. And I think we need to try and find better and better ways to mobilize people to actually do things, to support, to give, to, to really get behind um, putting their skills behind uh, good programs like this. I think that, um, I think that, Uh, In terms of the internet, you know, that's been an interesting journey for Barefoot because one of the realizations is that the internet is a literate tool. It's a brilliant thing for people who can read and write. You can learn what you'd like to learn. You can share what you'd like to share. But if you happen to be illiterate or semi-literate, you can't participate in those things. And we should have a system that, that enables that. So I'm, we're working very hard with some of our technology partners like Apple to work on mechanisms for illiterate and semi-literate users that will allow them to have the same access to the same benefits that the rest of us have. Also, um, we are looking at the the technology around uh, around transactional behavior that is very easy for those of us who can read and write and have access to the internet, which is not for those, again, who are cut out. So one part of that equation is you need energy to get access, and the second part is once you get access, you need to have an interface that doesn't require literacy. Uh, so those are, those are some of the bigger challenges with the internet. You know, everyone in the world knows... Uh, what the internet is, and the perception of even the most remote communities is the, that there's a, a positive promise for them waiting there if they have access. So I think we need to fulfill that promise to really maximize the value of the internet for um, for everyone, not just some people on the planet. And then I think we have to be very aware and very vigilant because. There are negative people who use the internet for negative things, have a brilliant ability to innovate almost faster than the good messaging. And we're all seeing that in the developing world in in interesting ways, but that plays out in very serious ways in the developing world, um, where radicalism and radicalized uh, recruitment uh, happens with 3G mobile phones and happens uh, on the internet at, at very fast and effective speeds. Um, and we need to be aware with our young people, most importantly in the developing world, um, to teach them some of those critical thinking skills about how they access information and who's sending it to them and to question those things, not to just uh, accept them, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think my question when I brought it up the social media in the internet is that you would assume bringing more awareness, you would have Hopefully, people more getting sympathize and be more involved to help and assist and even donate to the causes that they like. But do you think that's the case, or at the end of the day, it's just pretty much, you know, uh, people see it, read it about it, and kind of move on with their day? Are people more apathetic about those issues, or no?
1: You know, we we think a lot about this uh, in terms of how we story tell and and what story do we tell as an organization. Because of course, I I have horrible stories to tell, you know, of the realities that are out there and the urgency that's out there um, to support programs that that access learning for um, for those cut out and for those who need energy in order to to, to join a more vibrant economy to improve their quality of life, um, and so you could tell sort of only bad stories and sort of urgent stories. And then there are the other stories, which are that in the midst of that is the most unbelievable courage and tenacity and inspiration and wisdom and triumph of human beings. And, of course, I'd rather tell those stories because <laughs> those are the ones that, that are um, at the heart of what we do. Um, I guess we have to hope that people are able to, um, to see beyond Uh, the positive things, to see that good work only happens when people enable us to do that good work and make that possible. And at the same time, to imagine that behind those stories are great difficulty for human beings today and, and that we have a responsibility to a collective well-being on the planet, both for the planet and for people. Uh, And that we must act, we must give, we must do something to participate in that collective uh, mission and and vision. Otherwise, uh, we, we will not have a planet that will tolerate us continuing to abuse it for a whole lot longer.
0: I just recently was talking to a few other organizations who's a nonprofit as well. And we just had the same conversation about exposure and availability that people are completely aware and even a partnership with private companies as well. But it's still, at least for them, a very uphill battle to get proper funding. Do you think for your organization, is, has it gotten better?
1: Well, I think to a, to a large extent, we've gotten better. Um, I think we as, a, as an organization uh, understand better what kind of partners we want to work with and who will be productive for us to work with. We're much better at articulating what we need and what's going to get us uh, to scale and to the best impact we can. So I, I accept that in any partnership, it takes two people to deliver, right? And two people to be able to be on quite equal footing. And I think that uh, that's one of the things that I think has helped us to to craft better partnerships and to to use them better and to know who is going to be a good fit and who's not. That's very important. Um, and then I think that also goes for individuals who support you. You know, uh, it's wonderful that I'm starting to see people who've been giving small amounts of money to us for for now five, six, seven years. Uh, that's just wonderful because they're part of our family now. They're they're really part of our family. And Bunker and I and all of my team make a point to write personally back to those people to keep them informed, to never you know cease saying how grateful we are and what a difference every dollar does really make. Um, we're a Gandhian organization uh, based on the lifestyle and work style of Mahatma Gandhi. So. One of the things many people don't know about Barefoot is that everybody that works for us and with us um, agrees to do so uh, earning minimum wage in their host country, in the country where they are, are based. And um, that that has a rather extraordinary effect. First of all, it means that I have a an absolutely unbelievably mission-based, value-based, driven team who are all there for the work and the beneficiaries and not um, for the money, really. And it also means that from our donors and supporters, um, they really understand that we're committed to transparency and to keeping our operating expenses really at the, the, the least they possibly can be in order to do the most amount of work. Um, we're always challenging ourselves to say, okay, what don't we need? What will the community be able to ante and what will our partners be able to contribute so that we can um, arrive here with, you know, with the least amount of of need for resources? Obviously, this is the, the idea that Gandhi um, championed in his lifetime was to, to look at our abundance and not at, at what we don't have.
0: Go back to the point that you made earlier about the mindset. Yeah. What are you excited about? What's going to be going on for barefooting for you in the next few months or a year or so that you're excited that you can share with us?
1: Sure. Well, we have just signed a, a fabulous agreement with the government of Fiji to build the first Barefoot College for the Pacific Islands in Fiji. And that will be open next year and it will serve the 14 Pacific islands that we are currently working very strongly in, in our partnership with the government of India. Um, And that's the first uh, time that I think um, I'm just really thrilled because the Pacific is such an important region both uh, for the urgency of climate change and the the loss of livelihoods to many, many people in the Pacific, but also um, because this kind of trilateral uh, agreement where you have a social enterprise working with the government you know, helping to be funded by yet another government. This is just such a visionary and effective way for everybody to learn and for everybody to go forward. And that college will be institutionalized as part of the government of Fiji infrastructure. So we will eventually remove ourselves and, and they will learn how to run that center on their own. Um, we have also uh, Barefoot Colleges opening uh, in December in Burkina Faso, in January in Tanzania. Um, We are beginning work on Guatemala, and so I'm really excited about this decentralization of the idea, and all of those are in uh, agreements with governments. So those will become a network of vocational and technical training for women without a formal education. They are the only ones in the world. It's just extraordinary, and they will act as a platform, I hope for other uh, organizations who have great programs for women to be able to bring their programs and integrate them into those ecosystems uh in a very institutionalized way so yeah i i think that's what i'm most excited about right now
0: it sounds like you're going to be very busy in the next couple of months <laughs> and how do you do with that i mean i'm sure it comes a certain level of you no know, stress and anxiety to make sure everything is going well
1: yeah um yes of course it's uh it's it's a lot of uh, a lot of work there's no question I do not do this work alone in fact I feel like the conductor of a very large symphony these days Um, I have just these wonderful teams both in Telonia of the core staff from Barefoot College who've been there for 35 and 40 years who look at me in a moment of great stress and just tell me it's going to be okay because they've been there before and it's going to happen again and it will all get better Uh, and that's incredibly balancing to have them always there at the base and um, and then I have a team of young people now around the world who are innovating faster than I can even think about these days and they are a source of energy and hope and just awe, endless awe for the wonderful things about uh, young people and young entrepreneurs and and how mission and purpose-driven they are today. And when I read all the horrible news that comes out of different places of the world, they they are where I retreat to. Um, But I am also somebody who always has managed my stress uh, with physical activity. Uh, in one way or another. So I make sure I I do some kind of exercise almost every day. And I retreat to nature uh, because somehow the answers to all my questions always are there uh, in in the natural world. So that's how I, I manage.
0: Before I finish, I usually ask our guests to recommend a book
1: Well, there's no book on barefoot per se. Um, However, I will share with you the two things that I've read recently that I think are brilliant and I would recommend everybody to read. So I've just finished reading 21 Lessons for the 21st Century by Yuval Noah Harari. And I've also just finished reading the biography of Sir Edmund Hillary by Mike Gill, uh, because this year I was named the 2018 Hillary Institute Laureate. So I've gone back to my mountaineering uh, years and, and read the full biography of Edmund Hillary, which I would recommend everybody read because it's about ordinary people doing extraordinary
0: things. Megan, thank you so much for taking the time. It's been a pleasure. And now I want you to tell everybody how they can learn more about barefoot, how they can engage, follow on social media, and how they can donate if they want to participate as well.
1: Absolutely. So we are on www.barefootcollege.org. Everything you could possibly want to know, as well as how to donate and how to connect with our supportive organizations outside of India and to donate inside India. You can follow us on Facebook at Barefoot College. You can follow me on Twitter at BarefootMFC or um, at Barefoot College on Twitter. And we'd love to hear from you. Write to us, call us, and follow.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, Megan, thank you very much.
1: Thank you. Bye-bye. Have a wonderful day.
0: Hey, everyone. Make sure to like, comment, and let us know what you think. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook.